0: listen up. All you ever ask for is an opportunity. You got it today. Where else would
1: you
2: rather be than right here? Right
3: now. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder through gear. Be
2: aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are gonna turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me wanna oh!
3: Are we going to see a run of wide
1: receivers in the first round? There's a possibility. I also think there's a possibility where,
2: you know, if there's other needs or other positions that uh, are valued as first rounders, and then, ooh, we think there's a tremendous drop off for a while, that could end up pushing the wide receivers down to where maybe we see a bigger run in the second or third round. This is,
1: I think, the number one position of this draft. It is so deep. There's a receiver
3: for everything. What I mean is if you need a size receiver, they've got plenty of them. You need a jitterbug slot receiver, they got plenty of them. You know, you need explosive, like, game-changer type guys, there's plenty of those to go around, too.
2: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rock Pal Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill's season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Kruger, and that was Chris Sims on the 2020 NFL-wide receiver class, where was that from, Chris?
3: NBC Sports.
2: Chris, it's finally drafted.
3: I know. All of the mocks. Final mocks. Everyone's final mock drafts. Thank God. Coming out this week. I know you're excited.
2: Yeah, because it's the end. It's the end of mock drafts. I don't have to hear any more about any of this stuff. Chris, there's no more debate. There won't be any more banter about who should do what and who knows more about what prospect. All of the pissing contests are over. It's all done and
3: finished. Yeah, until Saturday when the draft's over and then Mel Kuyper releases his top 10 for <laughs> 2021. <laughs>
2: oh, Chris, the horror show that is the NFL draft may not be over yet, but it's draft week. We're almost there. It's also week five of the Rock Pal Report quarantine. Chris, how are you hanging in there?
3: Uh, I'm doing fine, I guess. Playing a lot of Super Nintendo, a lot of Nintendo 64. A couple of trips over to Reed's New Place to get his mail.
2: What did you say to me when I first got here? Chris, I've never wanted to kick another human being as badly as I did in that moment.
3: Oh, because I got some hair products in the mail and some uh, Chelsea boots?
2: (sighs) Describing them to me is if I'm somehow going to be excited for you about this.
3: Hey, I don't care. I'm excited. (laughs) More shoes.
2: I've, I've never wanted to give someone the Hulk Hogan big boot more in my entire life.
3: I've got to be honest. I'm not sure you can do that. I don't think you have the flexibility. You might pull a hamstring. <clears throat>
2: well, that's where you're wrong, Chris. I've been working out. I've been getting in shape this quarantine. I've actually lost four pounds since this started. You know, doing the white trash workout in my driveway.
3: Two pounds per titty?
2: <laughs> Chris, the only way my workout at home could get more trailer park... Is that if I were to put a weight bench out in my front yard, put on some Zubaz and a, and a wife beater, and just go out there while blasting White Snake, like that's it. maybe buy some pit vipers to wear while it's happening. That's literally the only way I can get trashier than it is right now.
3: I could easily picture you doing all that.
2: Chris, uh, I got I, I, a, I got
3: White Snake on <laughs> Rat Tesla. <laughs> Some little bit of poison.
2: I have a mishmash of random weights and things I've kind of taken from my parents' basement that just kind of accumulated there over the years for me and my brothers living at home. My neighbors are making fun of me. People are looking at me out the windows. But Chris, I got to do something, right? I mean, it's something. And also, I've been putting together a lot of baby furniture. Does anybody understand? For a guy who's trying to limit his drinking during this quarantine, how infuriating assembling furniture meant for children is.
3: Yeah, I was over at your place on Friday for like what seems to be the first time in a while, and I did go into that nursery, and it's a little for me, it's a little weird. Like like it like Michael Scott, it's happening, it's happening. (laughs) It's a little weird for you. It's yeah, it is. Like (laughs) we are like about what six weeks away where another human is dependent on you. <laughs> I don't think the world is ready for that.
2: And what is probably the highlight of the past week, Chris, for both of us, we got haircuts.
3: Oh, yeah, we did. Haircuts, we did, we, we did them ourselves.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, don't worry. No, uh,
3: I did Drew's. Prof- I let Drew cut my mohawk. <laughs> That's exactly what happened.
2: Uh, A licensed professional came over and gave Chris and I a trim up, which is good because, Chris, you look less like Mo from the Three Stooges.
3: And more like Travis Bickle, whoever that is.
2: (laughs) You're back on your Travis Bickle look. And, Chris, we got our haircuts just in time for the Rock Sports Network draft show. Okay, We're going to be broadcasting live both Thursday and Friday nights. We're going to be putting out a webcast. It's going to be live both on the Hashtag Sports YouTube page, Live, so you can interact with us. You know, launch your own questions. Follow along with us. We're gonna have on-screen graphics and overlays and all kinds of almost professional shit that guys like me and Chris. I mean, we we should probably have no part in that, but
3: no, we shouldn't. <laughs> but it'll look semi-professional. It'll be fun,
2: and it's gonna be you know us, the guys from hashtag Sports, the guys from Rock Sports Network, Dan barello Icy Vic, Ryan lace Cold
3: Front Report,
2: Cold Front Report. Clayton's gonna be joining us. It's gonna be a good time. It's gonna be coverage of the draft, which Chris this year sounds like an absolute disaster. Brought to you by people who spend their time focusing on the things and aspects of the AFC and the NFL that you guys care about. Yeah, I feel. bad. wish ba- you wouldn't be listening to this.
3: I feel bad for any team who uh, has their internet through AT and T. We know that they'll have the most problems come this weekend.
2: From the sounds of it, things have been a little bit chaotic, and Chris. When you talk about chaotic, there's one position, one position more so than I think any other, which is why we saved it for last, when it comes to having a potential to make the NFL draft chaotic. I mean, there was a tweet put out this week, and I I saw it first by Ian Rappaport, but it was first tweeted out by Daniel Jeremiah, who said, I believe we'll see less groupthink in the draft this year. At Pro Days, coaches and scouts from different teams spend so much time around each other, they end up forming consensuses on players. Not the case this year, and some people are going to be shocked at how high or low these guys go. To which Ian Rappaport quote tweeted and said, I had a GM tell me, the quote-unquote, the media is wronger about mock drafts this year than you guys have ever been. Point being, players are going to be taken in places no one expects. Chris, I don't know that if you want to talk about vo- causing volatility in the NFL draft, there's a position out there with the ability to cause that quite like the 2020 crop of wide receivers.
3: And what, so what's the second what's the second uh, best position group? maybe, maybe mm-hmm. offensive tackle? Maybe. So what's going who's going to have a run first? Is it going to be the tackles? which will push down the wide receivers or is there going to be like a wide receivers? But the problem
2: with wide receivers is there's such a volume of them. Chris, there's so many more draftable wide receiver prospects as a whole than there are as draftable tackle prospects. And I think that plays a role in some of what we're going to see this year. So as we run this down, as we do every single week in this, in the, the 2020 wide receiver draft series preview, you take a look at our current roster, Chris, because that's where all of this starts. Current state of the roster cap allocation: thirty-four point zero four million. That's fifteen point four one percent of the overall cap, and we currently have four starters. I'd say four starters on the roster, or at least people who have started in some capacity over the course of their career. Chris, in two thousand and eleven, the Buffalo Bills went six and ten, being an offense that featured Stevie Johnson, Donald Jones, David Nelson, and poor man's Wildcat quarterback Brad Smith at the wide receiver position. Almost a full decade later, Chris, you look at our wide receiver group, and it's not even recognizable from those days. No, we got more talent. D- Chris, Donald Jones and David Nelson, they left <laughs> the Bills and never started again.
3: I think Donald Jones went over to the, uh, the, the Patriots. Just as bad as he is a wide receiver, he's even worse as a broadcaster.
2: Hey, now that's a cheap shot. The guy, hey, listen... He gave it the old college try. It's not his fault that John Murphy bored him to death. <laughs>
3: they both bore me to death.
2: When you break down our current roster, first of all, you've got Stefan Diggs. He's has I think, boldest move as a GM so far. He represents the most talented option on the roster at the wide receiver position. And I think probably the most talented wide receiver we'll have had on this team in as long as I can remember. And Chris, going back to Sammy Watkins, when you look at their bodies of work, who would you say is the more talented wide receiver? I mean, you've seen the metrics, the rankings, you know, contested catch rating and the you know deep completion percentage and all of these things that Stefan Diggs has done. Is it fair to say that he's probably more talented than Watkins when he was here as a Buffalo when he was here as a Buffalo Bill?
3: Yeah, Watkins couldn't stay healthy,
2: and Stefan Diggs has proven to be pretty durable. He's a fast, physical wide receiver, plays with an edge, pretty much all fast to the game, and he thrives in the areas Josh Allen struggled most last year. I mean, Chris, being the narcissist that I am, we traded away our first-round draft pick for him. Now, the draft happens to fall on my 35th birthday. So with that said, I tend to believe that that's that's the Bills' birthday gift to me. Hey, Drew, you were going to sit here all night sweating bullets, Thinking about how are the bills going to screw up this wide receiver pick? Is it fair to say that for a for the cost of a first round draft pick, you're getting an established player, which beats a sharp stick in the eye?
3: Yeah, and he's got a pretty. I think he's got a pretty good deal, right? I can't really team friendly. I can't, I can't read. I don't even know the numbers, but I know it's a team friendly thing.
2: I wish I could isolate you. Just saying, you can't read.
3: No, I can't read. <laughs> I don't know how to read.
2: We're gonna send you to why. Uh, uh, Derek Zoolander, school for uh, kids who can't read, kids who, who can't read good, who can't read good. Then you have John Brown, last year's wide receiver number one, who I think is primed to have a big year as the now undouble coverable wide receiver number two. Chris, do you envision a universe in which you're going to try to double cover John Brown when Stephon Diggs is also on the field? No, probably not. Right? Nope. Okay. The thing about him is that he wins with not just straight-line speed, but also his nuanced route running. And he was clearly Allen's favorite target last year. He accounted for 19% of the team's entire, all of their first downs. Of course, every first down that the Buffalo Bills gained in 2019, he made up for almost one-fifth of them. By himself. That's impressive. Pretty good. So that shows you that when Allen needed a catch, he looked at John Brown. Sometimes you can't do that because he's too covered. Well, I, I, that, that dynamic is going to change.
3: Yeah, because then you go to the slot.
2: And then you got Cole Beasley in the slot. Now, at 30, he's not a spring chicken. But there's still plenty of meat left on the bone, I think, based on the way that they utilize him. He's a shifty route runner, a fairly reliable target for Josh Allen. He was the only player besides Brown in 2019 to have more than 30 catches. And he averaged almost five yards after the catch per reception. I mean, it's, even though John Brown led the team in catches... He only had 2.9 yards after the catch. I mean, that makes John Brown almost sound like more of a possession receiver, right? Yeah. Okay. Then you've got Isaiah McKenzie. He was our third wide receiver last year, Chris. <laughs> third wide receiver. And yet he had a, a ridiculously low number of catches as a whole. He led the team in yards after the catch per reception, and had a yards before the catch of just 1.8 yards on average. So, Chris, when they threw him the ball, it was literally two steps away from the line of scrimmage.
3: Yeah, those are called. What are those? What are those new play? Are they still called jet sweeps? <laughs> no, because no, no. Well, they'll, you line up in shotgun, and the guy motions in front of you, and you just catch it and like hot potato it to him. Yeah, But I thought a jet sweeps more like a handoff as he's in motion. Because technically technically those hot potato plays are passing touchdowns.
2: He finished with just one touchdown on the entire season. And Chris, he really didn't give you much outside of a satellite receiver around the line of scrimmage. That's all you really got from Isaiah McKenzie last year. And yet he was out there for a significant number of snaps, which I think underscores how bad things were in terms of the overall depth chart. Behind him, you had Roberts and Foster. Andre Roberts, I mean, when you look at who they are, they're just, Chris, they're two special teams contributors who didn't offer you really anything on offense.
3: Robert Foster offered you Seagram's.
2: I had to drink a Seagram's because, and I blame Aaron Quinn, formerly of CoverOne.net, because he caught me at the bar when I was clearly enjoying myself. Yeah. Clearly enjoying myself, took advantage of my lack of judgment and made, made a bet with me, I don't know why I accepted it, that Foster would have 50 receptions. And I said, he's going to have more than that. Pff, he's <laughs> going to be your number one wide receiver, Chris.
3: I think last year you were more in, in uh, had a vision of the Bills running some kind of four wide receiver sets with Brown and Foster on the outside as deep threats.
2: You would think that. And that's not what happened at all. You look at what Foster put out there. He had a really disappointing regression in his sophomore year. He didn't see more than two targets in a single game until week 10. Chris, he had just 64 yards. 64 yards. Do you know how many wide receivers over the course of the season put that up in a single game?
3: Mm, A lot. lot.
2: (laughs) He did. I mean, it's not like he was useless. He was a really good gunner on punt coverage, which is why the team kept him active most game days. And then you have Roberts. He's an aging wide receiver who, again, when you put him out there, Chris, I think he caught – I can remember one pass that he caught in a game. I think it was for a first down, and then he immediately came off the field.
3: Sounds about right.
2: Outside of that, he gave you a little bit of spark in the return game, but it's not like he broke any big returns. Now, whether that's the blocking, whether that's just bad luck, I don't know. He was better than what we've had in terms of returner, but he wasn't anything – I mean, he was a pro bowler, so I can't call him not special – But I guess, Chris, if you're going to keep a guy for return purposes, wouldn't you also want him to give you something in terms of special teams? Yeah. I mean, in terms of offense. You want him to be able to come in in a pinch. At what point last season, if if injury made it necessary, would you have felt comfortable starting Andre Roberts? No. Okay. The only other wide receiver of note on the roster is Duke Williams, CFL star turned NFL player. He wasn't terrible. I mean, Chris, he scored the, uh, what went on to be the game-winning touchdown in uh, the Tennessee game.
3: Yeah, that was his only great game he played. When you look at what he is, he's
2: a physical wide receiver who doesn't really have the speed or the shiftiness to separate through route running alone. <clears throat> so essentially, he's, re- he's a f- kind of a physical possession receiver is what you're getting with him. And with that said, his hands aren't quite where you'd want them to be. I mean, Chris, none were more glaring than the passes that he didn't reel in in that playoff game.
3: Yeah, that was a big spot for him.
2: That's the thing. They gave him the opportunity to prove himself, and unfortunately, he wasn't up to the moment. Now, maybe he can get better. But are you going to bank on that if you're a GM building your team?
3: No, I think last year kind of... I don't, he was inactive for most games, right?
2: Because Robert Foster was better on special teams.
3: Yeah. So, you know, as far as that playoff game is concerned, you know, he didn't, ha- he didn't have a whole bunch of chemistry with Josh Allen. But no. But a lot of those balls that he dropped in the playoff game, were, those were you'd expect an NFL caliber, caliber wide receiver to catch some of those balls.
2: Oh, absolutely. And then there's some guy named Nick Easley. Now, Chris, I, this name strikes me as a person that I should remember. It seems familiar. I seem to remember last year's preseason hearing the name Nick Easley. And yet I don't. It's funny how that happens, Chris. Like you think about some of the guys that you hear about in the pre like preseason. Oh, this guy did great. Brandon O'Reilly comes to David Sills. David Sills, who did what he caught, one ball? Yeah. One ball the entire time he was here in Buffalo, but everyone was high on him. Nick Easley, Chris... I feel like I should know something that this kid has contributed to the team. Something. Something he's done. A memorable play. And I just don't. Which I think tells the story of who he is to the Bills at this point. So when you take that into account, you look at the draft philosophy of the Bills as we head into the year. So I'm going to start with a tweet from last March. From Albert Breer. He said, I don't want to dump water on any parades, but here's a list of the number one wide receiver on the last 10 Super Bowl champions. Julian Edelman, Alshon Jeffrey, Edelman, Demarius Thomas, Edelman, Golden Tate, Anquan Bolden, Victor Cruz, Greg Jennings, Marquez Colston. Good players, but dot, 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 you tell me. Chris, this past year, saw maybe the most talented of that entire group, if you add Tariq Hill to that group, is it fair to say he's probably the most talented one yeah. on that whole list? Yeah. He, he got a ring this past season. But it's touch and go after that as you look down the list. And even the Chiefs, like that wasn't easy. They had to make a monster comeback to, to get that championship. And if they hadn't, the name of the number one wide receiver on the team that won the Super Bowl would be Emmanuel Sanders. Again, not a guy who you're expecting to hear early during fantasy football drafts. It really is an interesting phenomenon that high-level wide receivers are never really in the running to, quote-unquote, win the big one. Chris, think about it. Andre Johnson, Megatron, A.J. Green, Julio Jones.
3: I don't think Megatron won a playoff game. Chris,
2: out of that list, Julio Jones is the only one to play in a Super Bowl. The only one to play in a Super Bowl. Let that sink in. And I mean, even those two, Green and Jones, they're at the risk of ending their careers without one. I mean, I don't see things going that well for Cincinnati, do you?
3: Not yet. They got a lot at- of holes. What about Atlanta? Atlanta's garbage. They peaked the year that they went to the Super Bowl. Yeah.
2: And Steve Sarkeesian, I think, just...
3: Uh, <laughs> was he drinking again? Like, what, what happened there? I don't know. Was he... Was he their OC, or was it Malarkey? Malar- no, I think it was Sark. Malarkey's been in Atlanta like twice.
2: I guess the point that I'm trying to make, Chris, is that it's clear that having one elite threat on your team at the wide receiver position doesn't on its own make you a contender. Now, we talked about my narcissism and the fact that I, I view Stephon Diggs being in a Bills uniform right now as my birthday gift. Chris, I don't have to hand-ring all night. just hoping that the Bills don't fuck this up, knowing how important the wide receiver position is. But even as we just ran it down, Chris, our wide receiver group is not that deep. It really isn't. I mean, we have a a sound trio of starters, but when you, Chris, who beyond those three do you trust to start on a week-to-week basis and say, hey, I'm going to get high-level production out of that guy?
3: Maybe Duke Williams... Okay. But I mean, I wouldn't trust him a hundred percent, probably like 10.
2: (laughs) And now for something a little bit more damning, because Chris, we just ran down what the wide receiver group in uh, 2011 looked like. I took a look and made a chart because that's what I, Chris, I love charting you to death in front of you. There is a, there's a list and I want you to describe it to the people and then read off what you see.
3: Uh, passing yards per game rank for the last what, nine years? Nine, ten years? Since 2010 2010, 24th 2011, 15th 2012, 25th 13 28th, 14 18th, 15 back to 28th 16th or 2016 30th, 17 and 18, 31st And then last year, 26.
0: You folks fell on your face. You get an F minus in my book.
2: That about sums it up. Chris, that's disgusting. How do you as a franchise, Chris, that wide receiver group from 2011 that we just sat here and made fun of was the most productive wide receiver group that this Bills franchise has had in almost a decade. Gets infuriated. How? I'll tell you how. Because year over year over year, if you look back at the depth charts that we've been rolling out at the wide receiver position, you see that they're shallow. Chris, you maybe have one high-end option, if that, every single season for almost a decade. So Chris, I guess when I look at this, I say to myself, at face value, is the Bills wide receiver group set up for success in 2020? Sure. Sure. We have three good starters that we can trot out there. Arguably, I've, heard, I've seen some professionals out there in the media, not, not Bills media, but national media, debating if the Bills' starting trio of wide receivers might not be one of the best starting three in the NFL in terms of just having well-rounded skill sets and having good floors of production, which I'll have that argument with you. But beyond that, Chris... The wide receiver position we're looking at for the Buffalo Bills is a lot like the defensive end position that we just talked about last week. You've got enough firepower for this year, but beyond that, I see aging, I see expensive, and I don't see a depth chart that's incredibly deep. If something happens to Brown, Chris, who do you trust here to be our number two on the outside?
3: Uh, again, 10% trust to Duke Williams. Okay, Duke, he had his shot. Okay, And I'm, again, he could still develop. But his ceiling. I like how you used. He had a shot, and technically, he hasn't played one full season.
2: He played it. He played in a very important game and choked in a couple of big moments. He still has time to develop. But Chris, what is his ceiling? Given the fact that his athleticism isn't top notch, I don't know. Foster, Chris, we may never see Foster put up another season like he did in 2018, which is sad because. He has all the athletic tools.
3: Yeah, and he went to Alabama. I mean,
2: who else out here has any kind of future upside with this team as a dynamic starter?
3: Uh, none. There's nobody.
2: And then beyond that, Chris, because you know how much I love digging into this stuff. I found another excellent football resource for podcast prep, which is Sharp Football Stats. It allows you to kind of sort and see personnel grouping frequencies. Okay? And gives you the percentage every team I Chris, you can do every offensive play, you can do just run plays, you can do just pass plays. and it will show you the frequency with which every the number of snaps, the number of times things were completed, all of that data aggregated together for you to quickly kind of parse through in a table format, which you know I have a hard on for. Yes, OK. So taking a look at the 2019 Buffalo Bills. Not a surprise to Bills fans and analysts that the team ran a lot of 11 personnel. They they run three wide receiver sets a lot. 78% of their passes on downs one through three were out of 11 personnel with three wide receivers on the field. Which means you saw a lot of the rotation of Foster McKenzie out there. (laughs) Chris, Foster McKenzie were your third wide receiver.
3: Yeah, it's not good.
2: Okay. When I take a look though, two things I found in researching the chart that again, you just, those two names alone, if that didn't make you dubious about the depth on the roster last year, we threw with two wide receivers on the field, just 9% of the time and only completed 50 of them. Now think of 50%. We were 50% uh, with two wide receivers So think about what that means. You have John Brown out there, but if you're operating out of a base defense with just two wide receivers, then you're probably not, you're maybe trotting out Cole Beasley, but he's not going to have the same room to operate in the middle of a defense because you're operating out of what looks like a base offensive look, which is going to bring extra linebackers onto the field. So that area of the field where he's used to exploiting the soft spots in zone defense, those are kind of filled up. Who else, Chris? Who do you trust, if not Cole Beasley, to go out there and be your second wide receiver with John Brown?
3: Uh, Nobody.
2: <laughs> and we only completed maybe half you? of those
3: passes. You? Can you get on the field? So what that means is that
2: when you're trying to throw out of what looks to be run sets, we did really bad at it. Now, maybe the addition of Stephon Diggs helps that. But then... We only put four wide receivers out on the field at the same time, four times all season. We ran 10 personnel just twice. And we ran five wide receivers on the field, Chris, one time all season and didn't complete the pass. I want you to think about that for a second. Our wide receiver depth chart is so shallow last year after Brown, McKenzie, and Beasley, that they would rather trust tight ends to take reps out wide rather than anybody else on the wide receiver depth chart. Not even, Chris, once,
0: one time
2: in an entire season, you went five wide. I get it, it's not the most popular formation, but to know that you didn't have the wide receiver depth to do it. You couldn't even go four wide if you wanted to and you didn't succeed when you tried to cut your numbers down and go go with two wide receivers. <sighs> Chris, those are some pretty damning numbers on last year's group. And at least what the coaching staff thought of them. So given that, given the age of 2019's top targets and the overall quality of this class, and of course we're talking maybe historic quality, it has to be on the radar for the Bills regardless of what we've accomplished already when trading away our first round pick. To somehow find some additional talent for this wide receiver group, even, even if not now, definitely for the future. But as always, Chris, I never know what the hell I'm talking about when it comes to the NFL draft.
3: No, not when you got a class this deep.
2: <laughs> now when we could, Not now when it comes to anything. I mean, Chris, we could be talking about a class as, as shallow as a puddle. I know nothing, which is why we lean on the experts for their help. And tonight we have friend of the show, Mr. Brett Coleman.
3: Brett Coleman. I
1: don't know what inferior swill this is, but I ordered a Lagavula. The film room. Take a sip. It's not smoky at all.
3: YouTube.com slash Brett Coleman. Yeah, it's Lagavula. Come on. That's not Lagavula.
2: Mr. Coleman,
3: how are we doing this evening, sir?
1: That intro never gets old, boys. <laughs> I, I'll just say that. Do you
3: have Lagavulin in front of you right now?
1: Uh, I do not. I have four roses mixed with a four-day-old uh, flat bottle of Coke from my fridge. <laughs> that's what I have today. As I was
2: gonna say, I'm mixing I'm pouring a little Buffalo Trace on ice here. Now, you are a fellow whiskey and scotch connoisseur, which obviously is something about you we love. You know, and it's funny because that's how you start your new podcast. How are you doing and what are you drinking? I love it. Folks, Brett Coleman, draft analyst, he's of the Film Room with Brett Coleman on YouTube, wildly successful YouTube channel, recently launched his own podcast, the Bootleg Football Podcast, which is currently on YouTube, I, I assume Google Play, Stitcher, I mean, why don't you talk Weirdly a little enough, bit about we
3: that? Do,
1: we do most of our numbers on Spotify, which I did not know that was like a big thing for podcasts, but we get like 70% of our listens on Spotify. No you guys- shit
3: uh i I don't know the breakdown uh for us on that, but when I listen to podcasts at work, I will only use Spotify.
2: yeah wow, look at that, yeah,
1: <laughs> and so never the, knew that until started podcasts.
2: so how I was gonna say how has the experience been? You guys are what seven episodes in now, six or seven
1: uh we just launched number eight uh, a couple of days ago, which was I think our longest too it was an hour and a half doing deep dives on ten. Uh, offensive prospects that we just absolutely fell in love with in this class didn't didn't have to be the best prospects not even the highest grade or uh just ones that we knew we absolutely wanted on our teams um and and that one I think has done pretty well and uh people have been responding very positively to the pod much more positively than I thought they would at first (laughs) Despite us kind of working through the kinks in the beginning, but uh, it, it's been it's been a lot of fun.
2: We talked about it last week. Uh, we were celebrating our 200th podcast, and we were talking about when we started it, we were rough. And I figured there's no way anyone would ever give a damn about any of this. And yet here we are now, five
3: years <laughs> five later. Five
2: years later, still doing it. It's fun, and it grows, and it sounds like you guys are already off and running. Which, hey, cheers to Chris. We toast to the man.
3: Cheers to your new podcast. Cheers to
2: your new endeavor, sir.
1: I'm, I'm air-toasting. You can't see me, but I'm air-toasting
2: in California. <laughs> so we're here to talk about wide receivers tonight. And I want to start a little bit talking about the class makeup. And I, I don't want to go on a diatribe here, but I, I want to ask you kind of a convoluted, long-winded question. I'm going to start by setting the table with this. In 2008, NFL fans were told that the crop of wide receivers in that draft were going to rival anything that anyone had seen in recent history, Chris. I still remember it people were through the, over the moon with excitement because if your team needed a wide receiver, there was no way in hell they were going to come out of there without landing some kind of impactful talent. 15 wide receivers were taken from rounds two and three. And I, what I'd call a pretty prolific run. There were seven between picks 33 and 49. And yet when you look back at the names involved in what was touted as a highly prolific class, you had guys like Devin Thomas, Malcolm Kelly. Bills fans out there will remember James Hardy. It
3: was also Limus Sweet, right?
2: Oh my God, Limus Sweet, Who I don't even know how anybody thought that guy was going to be good, and yet his name got thrown around all over the place. And in truth, when you go back and look at the 2008 class, there was only four that actually went on to make any kind of impact. Jordy Nelson at number 36, Deshaun Jackson at number 49, Pierre Garçon at 205, and Bills fan favorite Stevie Johnson at 224. A guy that nobody talked about. So when I hear all the hype about this class, you have to excuse me if it brings back some shades of that disappointment. And I'm a little cynical. Yet during the inaugural episode of your uh, bootleg football podcast, this is what you and your co-host had to say about the way you sized up the 2020 crop.
3: I tend to like Pendleton as a nice little bourbon by itself. But the Midnight is just a little bit more aged in um, brandy casks, so it's got a little bit of a caramel finish to it. Makes it even better than Pendleton, and that is just perfect because we are talking about things that are pretty darn sweet, and we're going to dive into the wide receiver class of the 2020 draft, and there are so many flavors in there. It doesn't matter whether you like scotch, Irish, Canadian. um, (laughs) Any note you want is, is in there. Speed, height, hands... Route running ability, there's just so many uh, receivers that have all of those traits that to me and to you,
1: it's just like candy. You know, like there, there's certain teams that's really, they're, they're more looking for speed. There's guys that are looking for size. There's teams that are looking for just a, a straight up route runner that can catch and, and make tough catches and move the chains on third and seven you know, Buffalo needs size, Chicago needs speed. Like there's there's different needs for every single team. So I don't think it's so black and white about certain receivers being better than others. And that's why I think, you know, when you see where these guys start flying off the board, don't necessarily pay attention to what order they go off the board. Just pay attention to the fit because the fit is really going to determine what makes it a good pick or or a good value.
2: That was you, sir, on your own podcast. (laughs) When you said it, I mean, I, I was listening to you. It's funny, I went back and re-listened to it today. And I said to myself, after analyzing and going over this and reading all the scouting, that seems to bear out. I mean, can you expand on that thought a little bit?
1: You know, I, I think careers can go wildly differently, honestly, just based on where a prospect ends up. You were going through the, the 2008 class, for instance, just now. You know who you left out on that list that got drafted that year as a wide receiver who, who has been on the same team every season since then, and is the second longest tenured consecutive member technically as a wide receiver. Are you talking about uh, Matthew Slater? Actually? Yeah. Ah! Slater. He's, he's now the longest tenured Patriot since, since, since Tom's gone. And do you think that considering he's never really made his name as an actual receiver, he's always been a special teams demon. Do you think he would still be in the league if he got drafted by any other organization?
2: No, I don't know if he not. would be. No, no, I wouldn't say so.
1: So it really does come down to fit. Um, and, you know, Slater might be an extreme example of that. But if we're talking about a receiver that maybe is a limited route runner, but has phenomenal deep speed, has some box out ability on jump balls, and maybe he runs three routes really, really well, slant, post, go. Talking about DK Metcalf last year, do we think that he would do as well in most other situations than where he did in Seattle, where he had an excellent go ball thrower and Russell Wilson, and and a coaching staff that understood that while limited in route tree, he was good at a, at a few very specific things, and so they just made him do just those specific things. Not every team would give him uh, that same kind of opportunity, and so for a lot of these guys, I think the ceiling isn't necessarily dependent on their individual talent, the ceiling is dependent on where they end up uh, and, and to unlock that ceiling. And the floor is really a reflection of them going to the wrong team. That's so, how I look at it.
2: So with that said, it sounds, I mean, the talk of the wide receiver class this year has been that this group is prolific and that the floor, quote unquote, for a lot of these players and the upside for each of them is higher out of this crop than maybe any other we've seen in a while. I'm, I'm willing to listen to that. I mean, when, Chris, when you think back to last year's draft, obviously drafts have tiers of talent. There's certain drop-offs, certain points, at least in the eyes of GMs. And to his point, you, know, you think about a guy like DK Metcalf, the fact that he fell to the second round. Meanwhile, you've got a Nikhil Harry who gets drafted in the first round and a Hollywood Brown who gets drafted in the first round, and they're the only wide receivers off the board. And they have, I mean, Nikhil Harry had a terrible season, I think, for a first-round draft pick. Brown did okay, but then you look at the numbers put up by guys like Debo Samuel, A.J. Brown, D.K. Metcalf, who are all second round picks. I think that gives some weight to to what you're saying, Brett, about the fit and where you go. If they can maximize your skill set, it increases your value, which means you become a better value overall versus teams that use you or maybe don't utilize you the right way. When I look at the hierarchy of this draft, they're already talking about seven, what is this, four to seven wide receivers going in the first round, and apparently another seven to go in the second, or at least I could creep into that discussion. Would you agree that the top-end depth of this draft is wide receiver heavy?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think it's, it's the best since 2014, where we had, what was it, five? I think receivers go in the first round, but... Uh, it, Kelvin Benjamin had a couple decent years, but so uh, there was at minimum four high-impact receivers taken in the first round. And then in the second round, you had guys like uh, Devontae Adams. Um, uh, there was Allen Robinson in the second round of that year. So this is the the, the deepest and most, most talented class since 2014 that I think is going to produce as many high-impact players immediately as 2014. Going in my mock draft, I had six receivers. And the mock draft is coming out uh, tomorrow, which is the day before the draft. Wait, is I that the mock? I, I, going I, I hate to interrupt draft. you.
2: Is that the mock draft that you did a whiskey flight during?
1: Yes, it is two hours and eighteen minutes long. I am still trying to edit this monster. know uh, this podcast is kind of me taking a break from doing that. Well, I got I, bombed, boys. <laughs> well, I'll,
2: and, and I'll say this because I, I, you know, in just looking at the run up to it, I'm thinking to myself. He, the picture I saw, I see three, three bourbons on the table. Buffalo Trace, which I'm drinking right now, which has become kind of my podcast whiskey. Eagle Rare, which has become my home sipping whiskey. And Woodford Reserve, I believed, was that a double oaked? I saw
1: it. was a double oaked. Ah,
2: see? Now, being a Scotch guy, you surprised me there. I can't wait for this to come out, and I hate mock drafts. Chris knows it. I've been decrying them for weeks.
3: Well, I think think your opinion on mock drafts changes when you know that there's a flight of whiskey involved (laughs) with it.
2: Maybe if more people drank while they did it, I'd give it, I'd take it seriously. But I can't wait for yours to come out. With that said, we're talking about the numbers, we're talking about mock drafts. There seems to be a pretty easy consensus on the top three. Regardless of how you have them ranked, to your point, it's all about fit and who comes up where. Jerry, Judy, Henry, Ruggs, CD Lamb. When you look at the rest of the first round, I mean, outside of those three, what are some other names that you expect to maybe see creep up into that discussion?
1: Um, I mean, Denzel Mims is the first one that comes to mind. Um, ironically, I, I have him going to Minnesota with what was formerly the Bills pick. Boom. There's a lot of there's a lot of Bills fans out there that would rather have Denzel Mims for dirt chip dirt cheap than maybe Stephon Diggs, as good as Stephon Diggs is, you know, looking at and contracts and like roster management and everything like that. If it was up to me, I'd, I'd prefer to have Mims. But you know, whatever. Let one me talk to opinion. you about Mims for a uh, second
2: because he's one of the guys I've had a hard on for this entire draft. And it's your fault. It's your fault. You made a video <laughs> about him, and now I'm hooked. When I look at him, I see not just a solid athlete, but he's he plays with that same. I understand why you're talking about him replacing Stephon Diggs. He seems to physically dominate his opponents when it. When it's called for, whether it's if you're talking about catching back shoulder throws, whether it's him fighting for possession or him fighting for position on his way down the field, even in the running game, he's he hits. He's a hammer, and what is he six three, two hundred and seven pounds? So it's not like he's a pushover in terms of his size. Most DBs are fighting out of their weight class against this
0: guy.
1: Yeah, and and he's very good at using that length uh, a lot, like DeAndre Hopkins, where. Even if a corner's in good positions, he's gonna he's gonna find a way to kinda contort himself and give little subtle subtle push-offs when the ball's in the air and, and kinda create late separation with his length. Some people might say he's gonna be an OPI machine, but if, if Hopkins doesn't get called for it, Mims definitely isn't gonna get called for it either, because they play exactly the same way. I mean, he's throwing DBs all over uh, at <laughs> the top of the route. You know, if, if somebody's playing inside technique, he will literally just get under their armpit and throw them down the field and, and run inside. Like, he's a very physical receiver. Um, you know, he's a very hardworking receiver. You mentioned his run blocking. He's an ass kicker in the run game. Uh, again, I I had been screaming this entire time that this dude's a Buffalo Bill, uh, and it it truly stunned me when they gave up literally all hope of getting him when they traded for Stephon Diggs when I felt like he was uh, he was a better fit in my opinion for what they needed and that's uh, saying that as a guy who loves Stefan Diggs phenomenal route runner great deep threat I mean really 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 good receiver but uh, I was really hoping that Buffalo to help out Josh Allen would get somebody with size and catch radius and physicality that could bring a little bit of something to the run game like Mims was the guy, and I'm, I'm still a little bit disappointed that they gave up on that.
2: I mean, I'll say this, hearing Brandon Bean talk about it, he said that he, I mean, he, he opened up to the public, or at least to the media, and he said that what drove his decision was that he looked at the truncated season that was probably in front of him and said to himself, okay, if I need to bring a guy in here, because we're kind of in a win now mode, or at least we need to see what our quarterback is now. We need to give him every every weapon we can, most of the advantages that we can, so that we can't make excuses for him later when it comes to a contract extension. And it's he said that he'd rather err on the side of a guy who has an established floor of production versus a rookie who might need some time to be coached up. It sounds like a philosophical decision, and I don't necessarily agree with it. I mean, I like the pickup, but just Denzel Mims and the idea of this guy. One of the questions I have is that all of the things that you're telling me, and all the things that you've put out in your video series on him, makes him sound like a dominant receiver. So why isn't he be, he being talked about the same class as guys like Judy and Chennault?
1: Uh, I, I think a lot of it is just because people have known who Jerry Judy is for three years now. They've known who Ruggs is for three years now. They've known who Lamb is for three years now. They've had elite, top five caliber quarterbacks throwing to him. They've played in a lot of primetime games. They played in playoff games. Uh, that's, that's an exposure thing to me. And then when you finally saw Mims have an opportunity to get some exposure for himself down at the senior bowl, where it's, I'm going to line up against all these all conference corners from around the country and absolutely beat the living crap out of them for three days straight at practice. That exposure is where he finally started to take off in terms of people's opinions of him, myself included. I hadn't studied him at all before going down to the senior bowl because I was too busy uh, you know, working on the NFL, and I finally got to start studying draft prospects when I got home from Mobile. But I watched him in person with my own eyes beat the crap out of DBs for three days straight. Him and Michael Pittman and Van Jefferson, all these guys that have risen throughout the draft process, because I think they finally got just the same level of spotlight that the top three had been getting for the last three straight years. Uh, And I think Justin Jefferson also, because he was on LSU and and everybody was watching LSU a lot this year, got a little bit of a spotlight. So, again, I think they just kind of came late to the party because people just weren't paying attention, and I'm guilty of that too. But by no means do I think that makes him uh, a lesser receiver than anybody that's in front of him.
2: So now we've talked a little bit about the top of the draft class, which clearly the Bills have given up, to your point. Any real shot? And, Chris, I don't see us trading into the top – What forty picks for a wide receiver?
3: No, if we were going to trade up, I wouldn't. I can't imagine high forties is the limit I'd put it. We'd get up to and fifty four to forty five.
2: And I can't see us trading up to take another wide receiver. No, I feel like that would just given the other holes in the roster, that would just be too much. So then I have to turn my eyes to the depth of the draft. And when you look at rounds two, three, four, five, on down the line. I was telling Chris earlier, we were talking about the two position groups that seem to, I think, maybe bring the most chaos to this draft might be the offensive tackle group and the wide receiver group because there's just bodies at those positions that could be drafted in the top four rounds that could really throw the draft off kilter from what people think they're going to see. Maybe the wide receiver position more just because there's more of them. When you look at the depth of the players taken outside of the first round, maybe in that second to fourth round range, Do you see legitimate NFL starters, guys who, hey, I don't need to play, you know, a bench role, maybe a special teams role at first and then be groomed up to being a starter? Do you see impact players coming out of those rounds this year?
1: Oh, 100 percent, because that's where you're going to get Van Jefferson. That's where you're going to get Chase Claypool. That's where you're going to get T. Higgins. I mean, Higgins is my 10th wide receiver, so... Honestly, even if T. Higgins is a target for that kind of big-body receiver you need, you're you're not going to have to really trade up for him. I think he's going to be there at your second pick, which is, what, 54, if I remember correctly?
3: Mm-hmm. That's correct.
1: Uh, somewhere in the 50s. So, you know, I, I don't think you're going to have to trade up to get T. Higgins. So do you really want to load up at receiver and, and just say, all right, Josh, we're giving you every weapon you could possibly want here. Go make something happen. I think that's definitely a possibility. But even if you pass on Higgins, you know Van Jefferson's going to be in there. there uh, be there in the third. I think Chase Claypool is another one of those options in the second round. Um, I think you can look at what is it that like people like about Johnson.
2: Chase. What is it that people like about Chase Claypool? Break this down for me because I don't. I'm an SEC guy. I haven't watched. I'll, I'll admit it. I haven't watched a ton of Notre Dame football. And when I hear people talking about this monster workout he put on at the combine I look back and I see during the season everyone kept talking about him being a late round draft pick and then he goes to the combine and he puts out some freakish workout and all of a sudden he's being talked about as a you know an early day two pick and I think to myself when you look at some of the most prolific scouts turned analysts the thing that they'll constantly tell you is the tape doesn't lie the tape doesn't lie your workout numbers can be whatever you want them to be they can they they could be amazing it doesn't make you a prolific wide receiver. It's how, what's your, what is your play speed? What do you do when there's actual contact being brought your way? How has the narrative shifted so wildly on Chase Claypool? Like, why is he shooting up draft boards? He isn't,
1: he, he's another one of those guys that, that benefited from a very strong senior bowl where he went out there and just absolutely out-muscled everybody. Uh, you know, he's so much bigger than every DB that was covering him. I honestly... He looked like he should have had linebackers trying to cover him at the line of scrimmage because he was just demolishing people with pure physicality. On top of that, he's got really good speed. He he breaks down and cuts quicker than somebody who who's 230 pounds should be able to break down and cut. And uh, you know, I was I was down there with EJ and the bleachers watching him, and even you know some of the the my scouting buddies that I was talking to while watching him, and I was like, you know, Chase is a donut away from being Evan Ingram. <laughs> why? Why isn't that you know, talked about being a possibility?
2: Oh Jesus! See, now with that said, I almost worry about him coming to Buffalo because I think to myself, "There's Popeyes. There's a lot of great food. Paul's Donuts. Paul's Donuts. We got all kinds of stuff flat." <laughs> I mean, look at poor Kelvin but, I mean, Benjamin. He could carry
1: two forty. He, he could carry two forty and still run in the four fours. Oh. Like even if you don't like him as a possibility a wide receiver, if you're thinking about getting a move tight end which I guess Knox would already be a move tight end for you guys anyway. But, you know, if you, if you look at him as a move tight end where you're literally just packing on a little bit of extra weight, which he would have no trouble carrying, you get him in there as an H-back uh, and just match up with as many linebackers and safeties as you possibly can and watch him either just throw safeties all over the field or, or run away from linebackers, he could be a matchup weapon in that way because size-wise, he's right there.
2: No, you want to talk about skyrocketing draft stock, and again, I still don't understand how he outplayed his tape. Here's a guy who seems to have done the opposite. I have to ask you, and I've been, I've been, I've been waiting to ask you this question since we started. What the fuck happened to T. Higgins? What? I I remember watching the college football playoffs and the national title game, and thinking to myself, shit, T. Higgins is playing himself out of our range at the twenty-second pick. And what happened? All of a sudden, I, I mean, I'm looking at, so if I pull up resources like the Draft Network, I look at their prospect rankings, they have him as 49 overall. He's being rated behind smaller wide receivers, guys 5'11", 5'9". <laughs> what did he do to piss off the scouting community?
1: He didn't do anything. Uh, again, it, it was a, a spot, like, Issue. He played for Clemson. He was the number one receiver at Clemson for multiple years playing in playoff games, playing in nationally, nationally televised games every other week. And so everybody knew and everybody talked about T. Higgins for years. Nobody was talking about Brandon Ayuk. Nobody was talking about K.J. Hamler, Jalen Rager, uh, Donovan Peoples-Jones. I mean, to a lesser extent, Michael Pittman. Nobody was really paying attention to him until after the Senior Bowl, at least not as much either. Uh, you know, Van Jefferson, LaVisca Chanel, all of these guys that started to get more attention, not from scouts, but from the media over the last four months. And then everybody realized, like, okay, T's good, but Jalen Rager's better or Michael Pittman's better or Donovan Peoples-Jones is better. So I don't think he did necessarily anything to piss people off. I just think everybody finally got around, myself included, to watching the rest of the class and realizing – Damn, like, there's a lot of good receivers, and I don't know if I can put T. Higgins in the top five when I look at all these other receivers.
2: Now, it's funny because I'm looking out the window, and remember how we were just asking you before we got on the air what the weather was like out there in California? It was sunny. Start snowing
1: again for you guys?
2: It was sunny when we started recording with you, and now it's snowing, and visibility is pretty limited.
1: I'm telling you, man, you guys are just flamboyant Hawaii.
2: (laughs) We're Hawaii- Without any of the cool things that go along with Hawaii. That's it. That's all we are. So with that said, I want to ask you, some of these players, because everybody has guys they love. And that's what I think, Chris, I think that's what kills me about mock drafts. And that's what kills me about a lot of this scouting process is that the media and analysts like yourself talk about all the guys that they like. And they'll talk about guys that they are lukewarm on and they'll explain the reasons why. Who are some of these players? But, again, we watch every single year, Chris, that there's Nikhil Harry. Nikhil Harry was a first-round draft pick of the New England Patriots. Was not he injured? No. And Chris, well, he got hurt. No, well, he was at first. He was at first. But he played healthy for a large part of that season and just was a non-factor. Ultimately, what I've seen is this. The Patriots haven't drafted well, which, Chris... I'll drink to that.
3: <laughs> yeah, they're not—they're not good at <laughs> and he said, wide receivers. said, we can talk about a
2: time the Patriots screwed something up, I drink.
3: Yeah, and it's, they're not good at wide receivers <sighs> ever.
2: With that said, it's not like there's there's it, there's no such thing as can't miss prospects. I feel like at the wide receiver position, because to your earlier point, when you were talking to your podcast co-host, it's more about fit and usage than it is about the wide receiver skill set. With that said, who are some of the guys that you see already? kind of being primed to get overdrafted or drafted into positions that they're maybe not ready for out of this wide receiver class?
1: Uh, Well, I would have said LaVisca Chenault if he didn't get hurt uh, because I think people are kind of enamored by the athlete. But uh, when I look at Chenault, the player, he's not ready yet. Uh, I think if you want to use him like a Debo Samuel where you're getting him a lot of carries, you're getting him involved in kind of gadget plays, maybe you take a few shots to him every now and then, yeah, I could see the value there, but just from a from a technical perspective, as a receiver for a season that very likely will not have a true offseason, like you mentioned before, would I want to wait around for Chenault to develop the technical skills of being a wide receiver, or would I rather just take Michael Pittman, who already knows what the hell he's doing, even if he's not as good of an athlete, like he's a better receiver. And so I think Chenault's a guy that I'm lower on than most, because Especially at the receiver position, I tend to not care as much about athleticism. And I, I tend to care more about polish. Uh, to, to give you an idea, I think it was the top 10 receivers in terms of receptions. Their average 40 was 4.53, and the top receivers, top 10 receivers in terms of yardage, it was like 4.55. You don't have to be a burner to be a really good receiver in the league. You just have to know what the hell you're doing. So a guy like Michael Pittman, I think, should be drafted higher than he's going to be because he knows what he's doing, whereas Chenault, I think, is the opposite.
2: That's, Chris, that's fair. I mean, that's how you end up with Brashad Perryman, which was my yes. fear. Like, when I see guys like LaVisca Chenault, when you tell me, oh, no, he's got all this athleticism, but he just doesn't, he doesn't have the technical ability and he, he doesn't have the nuance yet, but maybe he'll get there. To me, that's terrifying. That's like you telling me, I'm going to put you in a car. I don't know if the brakes work. They might. <laughs> <laughs> is that a fair comparison?
1: Well, uh, uh, here's the opposite of Levis Chanel. Somebody who I think is not going to go as high, uh, even as high as Michael Pittman. But I know that especially in, in this shortened offseason or perhaps non-existent offseason, I'm not going to have to teach him anything. And that's Van Jefferson. He's the son of a receiver coach. He's He's been taught how to play receiver since he was a little kid, he's, he's older as a prospect. He's going to be 23 or 24 as a rookie, but in this day and age, you know, there's no guarantee you're going to be getting a guy for 10 years, even if he's a great player anyway, like with free agency, you're lucky to get somebody for five years if you include a franchise tag. So I don't really count on, on keeping a guy past his initial contract anyway. So I don't care about his age anymore. I care that he knows what he's doing. He has a, a wider variety of releases than anybody not named Jerry Judy in this entire class. He's so damn good in terms of the subtleties of route running, playing mind games, using head fakes, uh, kind of varying up the pacing of his routes. He is not the athlete of a Chanel. He's not the athlete that Lamb is or Ruggs is or Judy is or Jefferson or Mims or any of those guys. But in terms of just playing receiver, getting open and catching the damn ball, that part he's really damn good at. Mm -hmm. And and I think he's going to be vastly undervalued, especially in this year of all years. And I think he's going to be one of those guys that's like a Terry McLaurin who just knows what he's doing. He's a pro's pro. He's going to show up as a rookie. And whatever his future coaching staff is, they're going to look at him and be like, damn, this kid's pretty good. We've got to get him on the field.
2: Now, Chris, when you look at the notes that I send you, this is why I love you, Brett, because you're a pro's pro when it comes to podcasting. I mean, I don't have to send you a rundown. You, it's almost like you know the things I'm going to ask you about. Because essentially one of the questions I had coming into this in terms of specific prospects, I kind of lumped Van Jefferson and Brian Edwards at uh, South Carolina. I lumped them together because my questions around them are pretty much the same. They both suffered injuries in the pre-draft process and people didn't get to see everything they're capable of knowing what, I mean, you're, you're talking up Van Jefferson in a way that I, I like what I'm hearing in terms of Edwards. He's, He seems to be in the same boat, but he's a little bit. He's built differently. He's a physical wide receiver. Seems like an aggressive blocker. He's on a burner, but he plays through contact. Everything that I'm seeing on him makes him sound like a guy who should be drafted somewhere in the early rounds. What do you think the injury does to his draft stock?
3: You
1: know, it's a foot injury, and foot injuries scare me with receivers because they can either go away and never be heard of again or they can be recurring I, I, I don't have access to exactly what bone was broken in his foot some can be more temperamental uh-huh. than others um, and I'm not a doctor so I, I can't necessarily give a prognosis but I do know that there are receivers out there that have chronic foot injuries that seemingly never truly heal like Julio Jones that, like, Pops Watkins. once a year Watkins. <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> like something is always wrong. And he'll play through it a lot, but, some, but he's never 100%. And so uh, it, it might be like a, a Hollywood Brown thing where it's a one-time break and then we never hear about it again. It might be a Julio thing or a Sammy Watkins thing where it just never really goes away. I don't know for sure. All I can really do is grade the player, and the player is really, really good. He almost kind of reminds me of like a Marcus Colston type where he never really does anything flashy or at least very very rarely does anything flashy, but he's really solid, and you look up at the end of the game, he's got five catches for 80 yards, and you're like, how'd that happen? <laughs> like, that's Brian Edwards to me.
2: See, th- Chris, those are the types of players that you want to add to your passing attack. If you're talking about a Bills team that only ran four wide receivers what, six times? All year? Something like that. And we only ran five wide receivers once because our depth chart was so devoid of talent that they would rather put tight ends out there in space. We we don't, we're not a team with a lot of depth. And so I guess if I want to turn this conversation to specifically the bills, we're hard up for a future defensive end. We don't have a future laid out there. Everyone's old and expensive. Our, our young guys really don't have a large floor of production and they don't have a high ceiling. At least they don't project to it as of today. We don't have a stud right tackle and our current guy looks like he might be better suited for playing guard. And our running back core is still missing a complementary piece to Devin Singletary. So there's a million reasons on the table for the Bills to overlook this wide receiver class. Why do you believe that that might be a mistake?
1: Because uh, I think you want to see what you have in Josh Allen, truth be told. Uh, I think you want to give him as much weapons or as many weapons and as much protection as you possibly can. You mentioned right tackle. That's something they're going to have to address. But luckily, this is a good tackle class. Um, and, and so, I think if there's any class where you can come out of a, a day two tackle and feel pretty good about it, it's this one. Maybe they want to move forward into guard. Um, I, I, I still think that forward at right tackle and Feliciano at, at guard is still something that can be made to work. But again, maybe they want to move forward inside and then have Feliciano be a swing guard and then draft the right tackle. I'm not sure 100% what their thought process is on that. But in terms of overall thought process, whatever gives him better protection and more weapons so that – and year – was it year four now? You know what you have. Give him zero excuses. Give him a big-body playmaker that can go up and get the ball in the red zone. Give him a true deep threat uh, like Stephon Diggs, you know, even having John Brown as a wide receiver three. How many people would love to have John Brown as a wide receiver three and Cole Beasley as a wide receiver four? Like give him no excuses – to suck not that I think he will suck but I don't want any reason that somebody can point to if he has a down year and be like oh well we just need a T Higgins or, oh we just need a right tack you like, were, no give him everything
2: I was gonna say you were the one during that after that Baltimore game where we lost and I saw your tweet just you said if the Bills could just give Josh Allen a wide receiver who could catch the ball over his shoulder like this offense would be terrifying if anybody could just go get that ball
1: do you th- you would not have lost another game if you if you had a big body receiver with ball skills you would not have lost another game that whole year you would have <sighs> beat kansas city i guarantee it
2: god that's f- <laughs> and you would know being a houston Texans fan <laughs> what happens when you run yeah. head first when you run head first into the buzzsaw that was kansas city last year now do you think the depth of the draft is good enough to support that despite not swinging for the big names, you really believe that the depth of this draft of the Bills lean into the wide receiver position, we can go out and find that complementary piece to the rest of our core.
3: Yeah,
1: because, I I mean, even if you... Let's say you want an edge, uh, because your starting edges right now are, what, Mario Addison and Hughes? And yeah, think, Trent, Trent and Trent
2: Murphy. Everyone is 30 or older. That's what I'm saying. It's like the It's like the movie... Uh, What was that, uh, Chris? Whatever the movie with Morgan Freeman and Michael Caine where it's their last big heist and they're a bunch of old geezers, that's what our defensive end group is right now.
1: Well, then I think you can very easily make the case. uh, I I don't 100% know if they would be totally cool with doing this, but uh, let's say you take like a Josh Uche and you have him as a off-ball linebacker that you can bring in, uh, like let's say if you want to stay in 4-3 personnel against 11, uh, if you want to stay in a 4-3 against 11 personnel, and you have a linebacker instead of Klein, and I'm a, I'm a fan of Klein, but Uche's more athletic, that can actually hold up in coverage and kind of an overhang role, but then uh, you can drop him down and rush off the edge like Uche is a guy that I think can fit if they want to get a little bit frisky and, and kind of redo their system a little bit. He can fit in that kind of role, similar to how like uh Denver used Von Miller early in his career as a 4-3 sam and then he would rush off the edge. Like that's somebody who I think can maybe help you at two positions at once, not to mention his special teams value. Let's say they go after something like that in the second round or maybe if they want a, a more pure defensive end there's uh, Bradley and I, there's uh, maybe like Khalid Kareem in, in round three, Alton Robinson. Like, the, oh, Kenny Willekes is one of my favorites, I think, in round three you could look at. So there's guys they can look at. Let's say they don't look at receiver until round four. So now the names you're looking at for a big body guy, the one that jumps out to me is Antonio Gandy-Golden from Liberty, who's, what, 6'5", uh, and I think runs a 4'4". Four, four. Or four, four, five. Like he, How he's, he he's weigh? huge. He's long. Uh, he's he's thinner, but I think he's still easily over two hundred pounds. Just because Jesus. he's so damn tall.
3: I can't. But I saw him
1: down at the Senior Bowl too. I he's can't. Highly
3: underrated. I can't say that Drew and I have watched a ton of Liberty football. So, <laughs> no,
2: no, you couldn't say that, Chris.
3: <laughs> who has? <laughs> who has? You but, find me you know, the
2: man who claims that I'll call go. him a liar. <laughs> Yeah, he's going
1: to go in round four, I think, or maybe round three at the earliest just because the, the class is so deep. But he's big, and also he's smart. So, again, we're talking about uh, a, a year where you're not really getting to get an offseason. You have to teach rookies quickly. You know, this is a guy that took up bowling on a whim, and within two months he taught himself enough about bowling to bowl a perfect game. Like, he he had to order – Four-by-four uh, four Rubik's Cubes because three-by-three three Rubik's Cubes were not challenging enough for him. Like, he's freaking brilliant, <laughs> and he's huge, and he's got ball skills. All right. But he went to Liberty, so nobody's paying attention to him.
2: So would you say he qualifies as one of your sleepers for the draft? Oh, 100%. Okay. 100%.
1: That's, that's like my go-to, I-need-a-big-receiver-late kind of guy.
2: God, it started snowing harder. Son of a bitch. Coleman, I feel like this is your fault. <laughs> I don't know how or why, it's like it's like... Almost- the weather here knows that we're talking to someone from a warmer climate. It's punishing us.
1: It wouldn't be Buffalo without getting snow near Mother's Day, would it?
2: Exactly. Now, I never give my own sleeper, and I'm, I, I'm glad you're here to have this conversation with us. I never talk about guys because I don't, again, I'm the guy who knows nothing. <laughs> yeah, Ryan, I was a Ryan at Stan. Which makes me one of the biggest boobs on earth.
3: Yeah, that and Landry Jones. And Landry Jones, I thought the two of them so were. Gonna, was I. I thought the two of them were gonna change football.
2: So with that Bruh, said, I there's thought a guy
1: in Hackenberg was gonna be a first round pick. He got nothing on me. Oh,
2: okay. All right. I feel better. That actually helps. I'll you know what I'll drink to that, sir. But there's a guy you turned me on to that I haven't been able to stop looking at, and I'm wondering what the hell is happening with his draft stock, and it's a guy I gotta ask you about, Courtney Davis. Junior out of Texas A&M. What, watching this pre-draft process play out and seeing how he's kind of tumbling down the board, even though he seems like he's a shifty athlete, gets open out of the slot, what is it about him that teams don't like? And why does he, what do you think about him projects well to the NFL?
1: Uh, I'd say ball skills is the number one concern that people have. He, Again, I, I saw him in person down at the Senior Bowl, and he's my guy. Uh, I, I love him, but he was dropping A lot of passes. Uh, And unfortunately, that sticks out in the mind of scouts who, you know, if you don't have pro days, if you don't have individual workouts and their last in-person memory of you is you dropping three out of four balls in a drill uh, and not even like deep balls, like, you know, it was slants like that's that sticks out. And so he's going to go lower because of that. He gets open like a son of a gun. I mean, he is really quick, really fluid, great route runner. It's just the actual catching the ball part that's a little <laughs> bit of a problem.
2: <laughs> Hang on a second. So this is the thing, though. Like, that's the thing that you get paid to do, and you're telling me he's not good at it.
3: He's got Duke William hands.
1: <sighs> but it's, it's something you can improve on. Like, you can't suddenly get faster. You can't suddenly get more explosive. Um, he's already a good route runner. He's got a great work ethic. Uh, like he, his, uh, I know his trainer, who's the same guy who trains Odell and Emmanuel Sanders and like all these Pro Bowl and, and All Pro caliber NFL players, and like all of them, even when Courtney was going back to being like a, a freshman and sophomore, they're like, okay, who the hell is this kid? Like he's gonna be, he's gonna be in the league, and he's gonna be starting in the league. Like so he's, he can hang with people athletically, he can hang with people technically, he just has to get on the jugs machine, and that's why he's gonna go later than. In most years, he probably would because there's a lot of receivers that are just as good at getting open as him in this class. They just catch the ball better.
2: Guys, I urge you to go check out Brett's podcast. He has, His very first episode is all about the wide receiver draft class, and I think you guys are going to take a lot away from that. Now, this is normally the part of the podcast where we let our guest go, but I just have a few quick questions for you before we end things here because we're this is we're in uncharted waters here. I mean, we're facing the 2020 NFL draft, which Chris, I don't think this is inappropriate to say we could be looking at a potential shit show in the making. Yes, we could. <laughs> you someone who is ingrained in the draft, the culture around it, the process of it all. I mean, for me is just a for me is just a fan, the draft is one of the best nights because there's no fan out there who can you're either at one end of the spectrum or the other when it's all over. You're either excited or you're apoplectic. But this year has been weird, not just for fans, because we don't you don't have pro day information to parse through. You're not getting the daily updates of scouting activity and who's visiting what facility. How is it on the analyst side of things?
1: Uh, it's it's kind of weird because I, I think this is the first year in a long time where we are all speaking as an analyst who knows a lot of other analysts. We're all kind of allowed to really have our own opinions and there's no really consensus groupthink because everybody's opinions are not being constantly uh, changed almost subconsciously by news reports. You know, there's not a whole lot of information about which teams like which players just because (laughs) there's nobody going anywhere and and there's no like league events for things to kind of spread. Um, And, and so I think, the lack of information out there is almost liberating for a lot of analysts because nobody knows anything. And so everybody's allowed to really run with their own opinions because there, there's nothing out there to, to color that. And so I, I think it's been a lot of fun this year, like for me in particular, because like I just put out Jalen Hurts as my QB3 and I've got him going in my in the first round of my mock draft, which I think in most years – a lot of people would think would be super crazy. Maybe, maybe people still think it's kind of crazy. But I, I think the the freedom of the lack of information has been very liberating because I can have my own opinion and not not have to hear all of these uh, comments from people. It's like, well, Ian Rappaport said this and Adam Schefter said that. And it's like, no, that, I don't. I don't care what they say. <laughs> like, I, I only know what I, what I see on tape. And it's, it's been a lot of fun for me this year, honestly.
2: Well, no, and, that's, and that kind of mimics what we read earlier about the tweet from Daniel Jeremiah and Rappaport about that exact topic, about how GMs are telling these guys the media is wronger about mock drafts this year than ever before. But that's what's going to happen. I mean, it's going to happen in a year where there's such limited information. But isn't that kind of exciting? It's nice to be able to do yeah, that. It,
1: it's it's going to be crazy. Like it's going to be the craziest first round after the top five picks, which I think everybody kind of has a, a semi-decent idea what's going to happen in the top five, unless there's like a trade or something like that. Like after that, nobody knows anything. And that's the first time in a while where I literally know nothing about what's going to happen for 90% of the first
0: round.
3: See, I would, I would want to know, know this with – you know, everything that's happened with COVID-19 and, you know, all this limited scouting. Like, how many times on Thursday night is there going to be a moment like when Cleland Farrell got drafted at four or Daniel <laughs> Jones where you're like, that's that's the pick? <laughs> like, do you see a couple of those types of picks happening where did they just come out of left field like that?
1: I think we're going to get 15 of those. Oh, wow. I think half the first round round is going to people being like, what the hell? Like, why is Cole Komet going 23? (laughs) That's what's going to happen.
2: Exactly. But you know what? That's fun. I mean, and I guess I I say that that's fun. For someone like you, I I guess it's the other thing I'm curious about. How does a person who's more analyst than fan watch the draft? I mean, you as a Texans fan, clearly you're not worried. Your GM can't screw up the early part of the draft because you don't have any picks.
1: (laughs) Oh, hold on, hold on. I want to ask you this. You guys gave up all that for Stephon Diggs. You're telling me nobody picked up the phone in Buffalo to get DeAndre Hopkins for a second-round pick? Really?
2: Oh, oh no, I think they did, and I think the issue is that Bill O'Brien, for all of his infinite wisdom, I know you're not a fan. Guys, anybody who listens to his podcast, go back and check it out. If nothing else, but for his just, there's a level of snark that he gets to regarding Bill O'Brien that I just, Chris, <laughs> you yeah. know I'm a petty human being. It warms my heart. It warms the cold black hearts of my part parts of my heart. What I what I love about it is that the Bills gave up a first rounder. We gave up more technically, but when you look at what it's going to cost Arizona by the time they give him the extension he wants and the raise he wants, and everything else that goes on top of it, a $10 million a year deal really is pretty team-friendly when you're talking about solid wide receiver production. Would you agree with that?
1: Oh, and, and surely Stefan Diggs does not have a history of wanting to hold out for more money.
2: I understand this, but right <laughs> now they have him. So for next year, they have him on a team-friendly deal. They have future cap space if he does pr- if he warrants a raise, we have the money to give it to him. If he comes out to be the next coming of James Lofton, you know, the last wide receiver the Bills traded for that came in and had a really dynamic impact on the passing attack, they have the money to pay him. That's not a problem. The Houston Texans did not. <laughs> and so they, they traded him to Arizona. Now here's the thing. If it doesn't pan out that way, when you look at his, the cap ramifications and the dead cap numbers, he's not that hard to move on from. If you're the Arizona Cardinals and you're trading for DeAndre Hopkins knowing what his ask is going to be, which you can't tell me they didn't beforehand. They knew they were going to have to pay him more. They agreed to it. knowing that they, Now they're tied to that wide receiver probably for the rest of the prime of his career. If Diggs doesn't pan out, in a year or two, he's not on this roster and we're not responsible for any more of the dead cap.
1: I mean, I still think— The the Diggs deal is good for you guys. (laughs) Uh, Like, from a contract perspective, the Diggs deal is good for you guys. Yes. I think from a personnel perspective, in terms of just knowing what Josh Allen needs more than anything, which is a big physical receiver that catches everything that's thrown to him, you know, uh, just saying— I, I think I think he would, if we're going all in in a win-now mode type thing and just saying, you know, screw the 2023 Bills, we're, we care about the 2020 Bills, uh, from a pure football perspective of Tom's gone from New England, there's blood in the water, <laughs> the AFC is not super deep outside of, like, four teams, like, let's go for it. Would you rather have DeAndre
2: Hopkins or would you rather have Stefan Diggs? I'm going to plead the fifth. I'm going to plead the
1: fifth. Oh, you're you're a, you're a loyal Bills fan. I'm going to plead That's the fifth. <laughs> I'll
3: gonna...
1: say this though cuz you know you know that I'm I'm not watching another Texans game as long as Bill O'Brien's employed. You know I've made that pact, which means I have something very special in common with Bears fans. And you know what it is? What's that? Neither one of us get to watch Deshaun Watson play for our favorite team next year. <laughs>
2: See, you're petty just like we're petty, and that's why we love you. Brett, tell all of the, <laughs> tell all of the listeners where they can find your podcast, where they can find your film. Uh, guys, he's everywhere. Tell them about where they can find it on all your social media handles.
1: Uh, you can find me at Brett Coleman everywhere. Uh, it's Brett with two T's, and then Coleman is the most German spelling you can think of at K-O-L-L. M-A-N-N, or if you just type in The Film Room on YouTube, you'll, you'll see my stuff pop up. My most recent episode—well, actually, by the time uh, this gets out, maybe my mock draft will be up. But my most recent Film Room episode was on Justin Herbert and explaining why he's basically uh, a supercharged version of Mitch Trubisky.
2: Is that a good thing or a bad thing, considering all the hype surrounding him and the Miami Dolphins?
1: Uh, Both.
2: Well, is it a is it a <laughs> good very, thing or very
1: exciting? Like, is it a good thing or bad yeah, thing
2: for he, Bills fans, I should say?
1: Uh, if he goes to Miami, that's the best thing to happen to Buffalo in a very long time. I'll just say that.
2: Yes. sorry thank you so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it.
3: Again, you can go find Brett Coleman on Twitter at Brett Coleman, n <laughs> Just like Jeff Jarrett promos from the mid-90s. And then also, also if you want to go follow Bill O'Brien on Twitter, he's at 4Jacko69. Yeah, right. we, we figured that out. We that's found his, his burner. That's a, definitely a Bill O'Brien burner account. <sighs> Chris, it's the week of the draft. Finally here. It's
2: finally here. Guys, first of all, Chris, let's raise a glass. To all of the analysts who have joined us over the course of the last, what, two and a half months?
3: Uh Yeah, end of, end of February, early March. Two and a
2: half months putting this together, our draft preview series. I urge you, before the draft on Thursday night, if there's anything you still have questions about, go back through our history. We have shows from some of the smartest people in scouting. Because, Chris, you and I, what do we know?
3: I don't know anything. We know you definitely don't know anything. <laughs> uh, you know what I do know is that this year's draft is weird. Because it's in Goodell's basement?
2: <laughs> exactly. It's the first draft where everything has been changed. The landscape of how it has to be carried out has changed. There's no live draft. There's no green room. There's no there's no podium. There's no walk-up. There's okay. no panel of crow-faced analysts all <laughs> sitting around
3: squawking about what they think. Let me ask you this. How does... Because it's in Goodell's basement. How does he set up... The camera shot. So they're going to get the camera shot where he's going to be all night announcing pics in his basement. Chris. Like, does he have, like, a bookshelf in the back? And it's like you just see you just see all the uh, deflate gate tapes on the shelf. <laughs> they're just, like, in, they're in his house. Oh, maybe my like God. A, maybe a Tom Brady delayed... Uh, deflated football is there, too.
2: There's just, a to, there's just a Tom Brady fathead on the wall. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: no, I'm sure what they're going to do is kind of the cheesy, like, elementary school teacher overlay in the background.
3: He's going to be at a desk like a Have you a seen principal? those?
2: They sell them for, like, 60 bucks. They fit right on the back of a chair. And then it gives you a backdrop that you can put onto any kind of a webcam. Chris, we got to get these. They're 60 bucks and you can do anything you want. I'm sure they're going to put the NFL shield. It's going to be real official looking. He's going to be there in a suit and tie and shirts, and he's going to be wearing nothing but underwear underneath that.
3: It'll look, it'll probably look as bad as Brandon Bean's Zoom meeting he had a couple weeks ago. <laughs> that's that what was, I'm, that's
2: Chris. That's what I'm That thinking.
3: was atrocious.
2: So what I'm thinking though is Chris. This draft is going to be different from anything else we've experienced, and we've experienced a lot. I mean, Chris, for me, the draft is always an emotionally volatile time.
3: For yourself, what are, do you have a favorite and least favorite NFL draft moment? I mean, most of them are more recent because, you know, being a, a teenager and in, in college, I'm in Atlanta and i don't have the access to direct tv i didn't have direct tv so i and i couldn't watch games so i wasn't as into the bills as i am now because just the outlets to get bills information back then is not as easy as it is now so a lot of my draft memories are more like recent the spiller pick i remember <laughs> being in the bar and it we he gets picked, and everybody collectively just went, what? That's the pick? Another running back to add to Jackson and Lynch? And I would say any of the drafts that we've had over the last couple of years, because I, mean, I think we talked about it last week, being our 200th show, stuff that you learn is, you know, I think the year we got Trey White, we tried to do a draft show, like an uncut Draft <laughs> podcast, we're picking at 10. So at best, that's like maybe an hour and a half to two hours. So we can just cut it after our pick. Nope. It traded back all the way to 27. It was a shit show. We learned not to do a podcast during the draft. <laughs> that is an experience.
2: Uh, Chris, I got to pour a little bourbon out so I can tell this. I mean, I don't
3: we're you not probably have tell been, the whole you, story. You probably have better stories than I do because you've been here your whole life, so.
2: Chris. Our listeners have already heard the story of me kicking everyone, kicking myself out of my own draft
3: party. The Arakpo draft. The
2: year that we took Aaron Maben over Brian Arakpo, I went outside. Dr- I smoked a whole pack of Parliament Lights, drank twelve Miller Lights in the backyard alone with a chair from the kitchen table. Chris, it was dark before I came in.
3: That could have changed some things, because I think we had another first-round pick, which was Eric Wood, and then our second-round pick was Jarius Bird. Yes. So if you have a Rockpo, Bird, <laughs> Wood, like, first three picks, things <laughs> could have been different.
2: Stop talking about I'm already getting frustrated. But one of my favorite moments, Chris, if you want to talk about favorite moments during the draft, might have been the year we not only drafted Alabama defensive tackle Marcel Darius at number 3, To which, Chris, Tony Romes in West Seneca. I attempted at probably 200-ish pounds. I'm talking 260, 265, 270. I attempted a full cartwheel in the bar. Inside the bar. I attempted a cartwheel. Because I was so excited that we landed Marcel Darius. But then to compound my enjoyment of the moment... I got to watch this Browns fan who was there apparently by himself just come completely unglued watching his team trade back from number six and let the Falcons draft Julio Jones. <laughs> Chris, it was amazing. It was the perfect combination of me being elated at what we did and wildly entertained by the meltdown occurring out in the parking lot. Chris, I came outside at one point to smoke a cigarette. Back in the days when I did that kind of thing. And this kid is just sitting there crying, shirtless. His jersey has been torn partially like a V down the neck and then you could see like he quit. He ran out of upper body strength. <laughs> and he threw it in a shrub and he was just weeping quietly. Over past this <laughs> side of Chris There's nothing that makes you feel better about your own team than that
3: moment right there. Yeah, just go to, if you're unsure about your draft, just go to like a a Browns draft party. He was
2: drinking, he was two fisting red label Budweiser's.
3: It's gross. Gross.
2: I mean, I, I feel like that's pretty fitting for the Browns experience. Like that's what it is to be a Browns fan, isn't it?
3: Yeah, uh, didn't, I think you retweeted something. Uh, somebody had a screenshot of, it like, <laughs> I mean, might have been the 11 draft, but there were all these, Or when did they take, um, who's that corner they took, Justin? Gilbert? Gilbert. And then everyone around, like within five picks, before that pick, <laughs> five picks after are all pro bowlers. Like <laughs> That's just what the Browns do.
2: Browns. So Chris... We've had some good times. We've had some bad times. With all that said, 2020, I don't even know what we're going to get. Because the NFL draft is going to happen regardless of all this coronavirus stuff. But nothing about it is going to be the same as any other draft we've ever seen in our lifetime. I'm not going to lie. For the first time, I'm actually interested to see how it plays out. Usually it's, Chris, you've seen it. You've watched it with me. Either I'm on camera with Rock Sports Trying to present myself as a professional, but really just just aching for the bar to open up so I can get a drink. Yeah. Or I'm at home pacing like a lunatic. Chris, the the, the famous GIF that
3: you have. Yeah, from last year with TJ Hawkinson. I look
2: I look like a frustrated orangutan. You
3: yeah. <laughs> you were, you were <laughs> I'm so scratching
2: the top of my
3: head. You were so nervous that Detroit was going to go uh, at Oliver there, Ugh. and they went Hawkinson. So what they said, this is an
2: interesting follow because it has, Chris, it has disaster written all over
3: it. Think about it. Does it feel different though? Because we don't, Thursday, we don't have a horse in the race. It kind of does. It takes the pressure off. As
2: far as me as a Bills fan, it takes the pressure off the draft. I've already said it. I think that Stefan Diggs with that first round pick, regardless of what Brett Wants to throw in our face about not getting Hopkins for that first-round pick. Which, Chris, let's face it, they were never going to trade him into the AFC. No. So with that said, we already have a good wide receiver that costs us a first-round pick. I don't have to hand ring. It's done. I'm relaxed going into night one. It's night two where I start to get nervous. In fact, I think that's where things are going to come off the rails for me. And that's where you're really going to see the draft. Chris, I'd hope by night two they have it ironed out. Because right now there's a, there's a lot of room for issues. You're talking about altered avenues of interleague communication. We talked about this a couple a week
3: or two ago. I honestly think the Bills will be fine with that. because You think so? so well, I'm just going to say because I bet most of the Bills brass live in Orchard Park. Orchard Park, you got Verizon, Verizon. Top communication company. Okay, what about a team like the Buffalo Bills who like to be aggressive?
2: Bean is flat out said he enjoys being aggressive in the draft, making trades. Chris, well, just don't. It used to be as easy as, hey, you're all in the same building. Here's a list of extensions. Just call this extension if you want to reach this team. Guess what? That's all out the fucking window.
3: Yeah, it's going to be harder to deal with teams uh, that have AT and T. You also have the potential for espionage. Yeah. Well, let's be honest. AT&T is the Tanawanda of phone companies. I don't know what
2: you have against them, but I like it. Well, I used to work there, so. You also have the potential for technical breakdowns. Just, dis- Chris, you and I have tried to do remote podcasts. We've tried to do things over Wi-Fi, and it sucks. You've tried uploading videos from my house. I have Spectrum. It hasn't worked. Yeah. And you've bitched incessantly about my internet.
3: Yeah, and then I come home because I I have Verizon and it boom uploaded immediately. So what happens if
2: one of these GMs is drafting off Spectrum? We th- <laughs> we retweeted a pretty hilarious video this week of just some somebody making fun of the draft process and what it could play out as, and just the Cincinnati Bengals their their camera freezes up.
3: It's all glitchy, and the GM
2: doesn't know what to do. That's a Chris, it's a real possibility. We laugh about it, but that could happen. And then, you think about this, Chris. The altered approach to the draft brought on by social distancing. It's already created technological hurdles for all of these GMs. They did a practice run, and apparently the very first pick froze. That's real. Yep. That's coming from Daniel Jeremiah. Some coaches have found some benefit to it. I mean... So many franchises bitched and complained about the way that this offense, this offseason program as a whole. So many franchises have bitched and complained about how this offseason program has progressed. And the fact that they have limited access to medical evaluations, limited access to getting their hands on prospects and bring them in for visits. So, of course, you have Patriots coach and GM Bill Belichick out here. Chris, literally waving his dick and balls at the media. Telling them, hey, you know what I did? I exploited the fact that they uncapped the number of Zoom meetings I'm allowed to have. And I put most most of our entire draft board. I've gotten to meet with all of them. So, I don't know what these other people are complaining about. Chris... He's an evil genius. He's not going away anytime soon. And I feel like other GMs need to... Chris, this is going to be rough. Think about it. Here's Bill Belichick making water, uh, wine out of water. And you have other GMs who are still complaining about all the complications of the process. Do you believe that this draft might separate who's a good GM from a bad GM?
3: I don't, I don't think so. I mean... The way the draft's going to go down, I would assume if you're a general manager, you just have one or two people over to your house where I would assume you're doing the draft to handle all of the internet connection, phones, and that aspect. Kind of like how when we do this podcast. You're going to have a
2: million people inside your house no, in one the or middle two. of a pandemic. No,
3: just one or two. One or two. You come over here. Do you have anything to do with the production of this podcast? Nope. The the answer is no. So if you, and I'm just one person. So if you have one, maybe two, two people over at the GM's house to just do that so the GM doesn't have to worry about it. I mean, come on.
2: I just feel like with all of this uncertainty, all of this irregularity around the draft process, we're in line, Chris. For some fireworks I mean look at 2019's draft we we watched Mike Mayock go off script and draft Cleland Farrell number four overall who was badly outplayed by uh, Jaguars defensive end Josh Allen we watched Daniel Jones go number six I think that sh- I think that broke some people's minds in the scouting
3: community yeah that helped us get at Oliver okay And yet, to Brett's
2: point, this year is one of the first that analysts really won't have as much ammunition to lob at GMs in the aftermath of the draft, considering they have almost no idea what's actually going on. I mean, hell, this is what Brandon Bean himself had to say about mock drafts and his old boss, Dave Gettleman, on Barstool Sports Pardon My Take.
3: Uh, You know, I look at it, it's good bathroom reading. You can't trust him. Dave's Smart, man, he's he's putting you. He's throwing all the all the curveballs out there. Uh, he's actually pretty tech savvy. Uh, so don't don't let him fool you. In all seriousness, I do like Brandon being uh, said there that he thinks mock drafts are great bathroom material.
2: <laughs> he he and I both. I mean, this is our GM who plays things close to the vest, telling other people not to underestimate someone and laughing at the institution of media. In terms of scouting. Chris, I think the whole segment's worth a listen. I mean, we'll link it in the show's description. Now, maybe he's just sticking up for his old boss. Or maybe the fact is the guys who do the most talking seem to know the least. And this year, Chris, when you're talking about RGM, who we've seen pulls the trigger on things, and he doesn't talk. He thinks loose lips sink ships. This really could become the Wild West. No one knows what's coming for him. And speaking of people who know the least about the NFL draft, Chris, it's time for our annual draft Seagram's bets. Yes. Ah. Yes. So, Chris, you know, we don't have a first-round draft pick. So the pick at 54, let's wager... God, I wish we I, I wish we had some like Western music to dub in behind.
3: <laughs>
0: I
2: can't whistle, otherwise I would.
3: Yeah, I don't know how to whistle either. But what is what position are we taking at fifty four? I honestly think, as to what Brett had said, you give Josh Allen every weapon that he, and piece of protection that he can have to succeed. This year, I honestly think at 54, we're going running back. <sighs> Chris, I
2: feel like at that position, running back is a luxury. It's a luxury. When you look at the defensive end group and you see what they cost, we talked about it last week. It's it's an exorbitant amount that we're paying right now for old guys with, hell, they've produced. But Chris, are they the future? At some point, you got to find it. I think they start swinging for the fences this year. I think they go defensive end.
3: All right, there we go. And if if it's a different position, we're both drinking Seagram's.
2: I'll toast to that.
3: All right, there we go. All right,
2: you heard it. Now, with that said, I think they go running back in the first two rounds.
3: In round three? I'll agree with that.
2: Do the Bills draft a specialist, a kicker or punter, in this year's
3: draft, Chris? You know, I, I had brought that up earlier off air. Now I'm kind of, I'm kind of <laughs> rethinking that. Now you're kind of regretting saying you, it. Well, yeah. You know why? Because your balls are this close to the bandsaw. No, I forgot. You per- Don't tell me you remember that we also have Kari Vedvik. I just totally <laughs> blacked out that we have that Do guy on the scene. Do you mean the
2: guy who gifted us the week one victory over the Jets? Yes. Let's not forget he missed three kicks.
3: But he's but he's here, I believe, as a punter, no longer doing place kicking. As he should be. Because I, I brought it up earlier, I will stick to my guns. At, at some point, we do draft a specialist. Wow.
2: Chris, if they waste a pick in this draft... The seventh deep, round. As deep as it is at the skill positions, if we waste a pick in this draft on a skill position, I'll I'll gladly drink a Seagrass because that'll just... Chris... I I
3: deserve that for thinking that this team's
2: smarter than I thought they
3: were. Yeah, I can't wait till Saturday night when I'm like, oh, yeah, the last day of the draft was today. And then find out seventh round pick, punter. One of the biggest that I think I could levy tonight. Does
2: Blake Ferguson, long snapper out of LSU, brother of Bill's captain and friend of the show, Reed Ferguson, get drafted or is he an undrafted free agent? He's a UDFA. Chris, he attended the Senior Bowl. He got invited to the Combine, and he is the only long snapping prospect in the country to have had in person interviews with multiple teams.
3: Yeah, but like what you just said to me about special there's so many people, players at the skill positions. We'll be a UDFA. All right, I'll take that bet.
2: I think he's going to be a late round draft pick just because I don't want to doubt a Ferguson. (laughs) Chris, it's going to be an interesting experience for sure. Especially for everyone at home trying to watch this draft on TV. You guys, I feel bad. You're essentially going to be subjected to four hours of Trey Wingo trying to broadcast almost the entire draft alone from a room, probably somewhere in his house.
3: That is one big pile of shit.
2: I mean, the TV coverage is usually pretty pedestrian, but this has the potential to be next level bad.
3: Yeah, it does.
2: So given that we're doing the rock sports network live stream, and I think you guys should all tune in. Yes, I do have a reason for dunking all over regular TV. Chris, when you come over to my house and we watch the draft, how much are you actually paying attention to what the broadcasters are saying to begin with?
3: Uh, no, I usually got my phone out. I'm taking videos of you that <laughs> later become gifts. Uh, I'm, oh, I'm just thinking about our brand as all this is happening. I'm just watching you, watch the draft, watching you, watch football. But I don't give a phone fuck out. what they're talking about.
2: And neither do, neither do most people. And so now you're talking about a broadcast that has almost no redeeming value. So with that in mind, we and the guys at Rock Sports Network, the guys from hashtag sports, and you got Dan, cold
3: front report,
2: cold front report. Clayton, we're having a number of your favorite Bills content producers. We're all collaborating on a zoom meeting. It's going to be live on Facebook. It's going to be live on YouTube over at the hashtag sports page. We have links to all of it in the show's description. Especially, this is my question. Chris, why would you watch one person fumble their way through the draft process? Trying to describe it all, talk about it, maybe throwing it to one or two remote people with the obvious cutoffs like it is now. Like when you watch NFL Network now, it's terrible.
3: I don't even get NFL
2: Network, so. Of course you don't. It's It's terrible. Do you want that for a whole draft, or do you want to listen to people who actually study the teams that you're interested in, the conferences and the divisions that you're interested in? Produce a draft show together. Chris, I think it's a no-brainer. So (laughs) with that said, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be drinking, hanging out. We're all going to be talking the draft. It's going to be a great time. Find a link in the show's description, or just tweet at us for an invite on Facebook both the Rock Sports Network Facebook feed and Hashtag Sports YouTube Live. You're going to have the opportunity to interact with us live. You can field your questions. We'll interact with you. It's going to be a great time. And, Chris, quarantine be damned. This might be one of the best draft shows we've done in a while.
3: Yeah. It's going to be a fantastic time. Can't wait. Guys, we're almost out of this.
2: This thing is almost over. And when it's done, Chris... No more mock drafts. No more arguments about hand size and agility drills. It'll all be over, but the crime. And with that in mind, guys, we wish the Buffalo Bills the best of luck. We wish you the best of luck. Happiness and health. Chris, I feel like Peter Vankman in the end of Ghostbusters when you're about to cross the streams. I'll see you all on the other side. Guys, thank you so much for showing up tonight. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. That was Brett Coleman. And this has been the Rock Pile Report.
0: I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast.